All right, ladies, welcome. I know it's Erev Shabbat and everybody's busy. But nonetheless, uh, we do have to spend some time in developing uh, an idea from this week's Perasha. And it's not an easy one. And it's going to take time to bring out what I believe is a great uh, revelation. Uh, the Perasha is earth-shattering, uh, no pun intended. Eventually, the earth will actually shatter, and Korah will find himself under the ground. Uh, the basic story is that Korah, who was a cousin, first cousin of Moshe, uh, he gathered a bunch of people with him, and he wages a, a mutiny against Moshe. And he's questioning his authority, he's questioning Moshe Rabbeinu's appointments, and so on and so forth. Now. Before we begin, we have to know what was driving Korah. What was his motivation? I'm sorry to tell you that his motivation wasn't, wasn't healthy at all, and it wasn't something that is uh, praiseworthy. The Gemara says he was jealous, he was envious. What was driving him was the wrong reasons. Nobody could say that Korah was you know, Leshem Shamayim, and he was motivated, you know, religiously, and he had the idealistic intentions. Unfortunately, he got bitten by the bug of envy. Uh, it's very contagious, unfortunately. And he felt that he was passed over. He said, listen, I don't have a problem with Moshe being the leader, but now you're appointing the president of the tribe. I should have been uh, chosen. Why did you pick the other guy? Now, in that case over there, you know, you go to sleep, you wake up the next morning, you hope it goes away. In Korah's case, it only got worse. It percolated and it's kept on festering more and more until, you know, he wages an, an outright uh, rebellion against Moshe. So that's what was motivating him. But it's clear that that's not what he told the people. I mean, Korah could not have gone to the people and said, listen, I'm jealous. Uh, I want to get power. Will you join me to fight? Korah was a clever man, the Gemara says. He was a pikeah. And part of his uh, cleverness is that he's able to convince very smart people, including heads of the Sanhedrin, heads of the high court, men of stature, men of, uh, uh, of, of, of religious standing, and he convinced them. The question that I have is, what did he tell them? I am sure he did not tell them, listen, I'm envious, I'm jealous. You know, they passed over me, you got to help me get a position. They would have told them, go read Mesilat Yisharim, go read some Musad and work on, work on your bad traits. He did not tell them that. We know what was driving him because the Gemara tells us. But now I came today to discuss what was his claim and it must have been, by the way, a very convincing claim because he got a lot of big wigs, people of, again, you know, religious uh, standing to join him. That's the simple question we came to ask today. What did he tell the people? I found the Midrash. There's a Midrash that's called Midrash Pili'ah. Midrash Pili'ah means it's a rabbinical text that says wondrous things. Anytime you read Midrash Piliyah, your reaction is, this is a Pele, 
it's, it's a wonder, because it sounds so far out there, these midrashim, and many rabbis struggle to try to explain what the midrash means. I'm going to give you an example today of midrash Pali'ah. The midrash says, what did Korah see that drove him to fight against Moshe? The midrash Pali'ah says, Ra'a para aduma. He saw the red cow. <laughs> now don't ask me what is that talking about because that's why it's called Midrash Padiyah. It's very, very shocking. Some people when they get angry they see red. He saw, not red, he saw a red cow. Now, what is it? He saw a red cow. Now we all know what the para aduma is. That's the red cow that they take the ashes and they mix it with the water and they sprinkle it on the people that are ritually impure. And the Midrash is saying, that's what he saw and that's what was driving him. And that's what he was uh, pontificating to the people. He saw Paraduma. What does it mean? Furthermore, the Pasuk says, Vayikach Korah. Vayikach means he took something. And the first Rashi in the Parasha says, what did he take? So the Midrash says, he took a talet. You believe it? He took a talet. What type of talet? Ladies, I know most of you don't wear talet, and I'm not recommending it. So I'll just teach you a law of talet. In the olden days, they used to have the strings, the tassels on the corner. They used to have seven white strings and one blue string. The blue string is called techelet. All you need is one blue, and it exempts the garment, the other seven. So Korah came along and he brought a talit that the whole talit was blue. The whole garment was blue. And he tells Moshe in front of the people, Moshe, does this talit need a blue string? And Moshe Rabbeinu says, yes. So Korah says, I don't understand. If you have a white garment and one blue string exempts it, here the whole garment is blue. Kalbahomer, you shouldn't need a blue string. So he brought a talit. That was part of his argument. He brought something else to Gemara says. Gemara says, he brought the following argument, a mezuzah. He asked Moshe, if you have a room filled with books, filled with Jewish books, like we have upstairs in the library, beautiful 10,000 books, seferim. Does a room with 10,000 Jewish books need a mezuzah? Moshe Rabbeinu says, absolutely. He said, I don't understand. This one little mezuzah exempts a regular room. Here you have 10,000 books with so much Torah. Why should it need a mezuzah? Certainly it should not. The third thing he came along and told Moshe, he said, Moshe, I want to ask you a question. You taught us the law of leprosy. What's the law of leprosy? Somebody has, a man or a lady, has a certain white patch on them, and the Kohen sees it, that white patch renders them impure. They are called mitzorah. Even if it's a little patch, if the Kohen sees it, impure, tamer. But the Torah says, if the white patch is on the whole body, guy wakes up, the lady wakes up, they're white from head to toe. The Torah says, that the person is pure. So Korah says, I don't understand. If a little patch 
makes the person Tameh. If the patch is on the whole body, certainly they should be Tameh. So he questioned three laws. So when it says Vayikach Korah, he brought an argument. Ladies, I'm reviewing the arguments quickly. The blue talet. The second one is what? The mezuzah. The, the room filled with books. Does it need a mezuzah? And the tzara'at. The mitzorah. Now should I tell you how I learned it for the past 50 years? And I'll be honest with you. I always thought Korah was making fun of the Torah. And he was saying, it doesn't make sense, this, this, this law that you're giving us. And therefore you made it up. He was trying to show the people the law is illogical. How can you tell me if it's all blue, it needs a blue string? How can you tell me a whole room full of books still needs a little parchment on the, on, on the door? How can you tell me if the guy's filled with leprosy from head to toe, he's pure? Does this make sense? It doesn't. You know why? Because he's making it up. And therefore, Qur'an was trying to put like a doubt on the tradition of Moshe, and then his point was, and just like he's making up the laws, he's making up these appointments also. He decides who should be the Kohen, he decides who should be the president, he's doing his own business over here. That's how I learned it in previous years. But uh, my apologies, because I think I told it to you. So you must have accepted it uh, from me. Uh, but I have to say that I have a different opinion this year. So please go back to your notes and put an asterisk that the rabbi changed his mind in the subsequent year. At least I'm honest enough to say that I have a different opinion. My opinion now is, I don't understand. Korah, he knows that if Moshe would be making up laws, would he make up laws that don't make sense? If somebody wants to make up something, you make it up where the people will Accept it. You're not going to make up a law that's counterintuitive. So, what does Quran say? You made it up. I mean, it doesn't make sense that if Moshe Rabbeinu made it up, he would make up a law that's so against logic, counterintuitive. And anyway, ladies, you know as well as I do, does every law in the Torah make sense? It doesn't. And that's the facts. That's the beauty of the Torah. It's divine. If everything made perfect sense, then you lower the level of the Torah because then it's limited to human comprehension. And the Torah is not synthetic. It's not developed by a human. It's developed by God. So therefore, a lot of the laws are going to be surprising. They're going to be uh, 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 a little shocking to the reader. We're not going to understand the conclusions always. Korah understands that. By the way, Korah understands that many laws of the Torah defy logic. That's the nature of a divine book. So now all of a sudden, hey, it doesn't make sense. Korah, you're a rabbi. Korah is a tamid hakam. You give classes, you know that you can't explain everything. Sometimes you have to tell the student, it's the way it is then, don't ask any more questions. But rabbi, it doesn't make sense. Everything makes sense to you. Torah says to do it, you keep your mouth shut and do it. Korah knows that. So what is he doing with Sarah? Does it make sense? If I was Moshe, I would tell Moshe, Korah, what, what do you, you know that it's divine. So therefore today I have a different theory what he was doing. I'm not going to tell it to you yet. But I have a different theory. 
and it's a novel theory. I have two more questions. I know it's Erev Shabbat, but I nonetheless must ask these two more questions because these are perplexing me. The Gemara Sanhedrin says, besides all the other stuff they threw at Moshe, now hold on to your seats, they made another claim against Moshe. You're not going to believe this claim. But part of the things that they uh, indicted Moshe, the Gemara says in Sanhedrin, Hashaduhu be'eshet ish. They said, ah, Moshe, eshet ish. They suspected him with a married woman. For those that don't speak Hebrew, you believe it? And I'm saying to myself, hold it, hold it. Moshe Rabbeinu was the holiest man. Not only doesn't have Eshet, he's separated from his wife. He doesn't even have his own wife. Forget about Eshet Ish. Because he has total connection with God 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Anybody questioning the Kiddushav Moshe Rabbeinu, a man that could talk to God for 40 days and 40 nights, not eat or drink, you think, come on, it doesn't even enter anybody's and you're talking to smart people. Could you convince anybody in Cloud Israel that, yeah, he's a philanderer, God forbid? Who would believe it? They shouldn't take Korah, they take a baseball bat and break his head. There you talk about Moshe. So, again, in previous years, I don't know how I learned this Gemara. But I cannot accept that that was Korah's claim, literally. Because nobody in their right mind would accept that. Is that correct? So then what was he saying? Then what was he saying? I have one more question. And please don't hold me. If I end up asking another question or two, that's the way it works. I'm the moderator of the class, so I get to ask as many questions as I want. That's, that's the advantage. Now, but I, I do think one more question will suffice. Then we can, we can get to the, to, to the program. So what did Moshe Rabbeinu do? He said, listen, we're going to make an experiment. We'll do a test. You say that Aharon is not the chosen one. You believe that others have the ability to be the Kohen. So we'll make an experiment tomorrow morning and we'll put this to bed. Tomorrow morning, the 250 people will come. They will bring equipment. They will bring a copper pan shovel, they will put in it coals, fire, and they will bring incense, ketoret. And Aharon will also do the same. And we will see very clearly whose ketoret God's, God accepts and who he doesn't. Very simple. Listen, you think you're worthy, I'm telling you it's Aharon. Tomorrow morning we do the experiment, everybody come to the game, you come with your, your, your pans and your coals and your fire and your ketoret. And uh, let's see, there's a contest. Will the real Kohen please stand up? And then we'll see who the real Kohen is. Very, uh, very simple. But is it very simple? Dear ladies, where is the ketoret brought? The ketoret is an incense. But first of all, when is it brought? It's brought every day. Where is it brought? It's brought in a structure that's called Mishkan. Mishkan is a holy place. 
Is the ketoret allowed to be brought outside the Mishkan? No. It has a certain spot. Can 250 people fit in the Mishkan? No. Now, by the way, where did these 250 people, where was the setup for this contest? Outside the Mishkan. And where was Aharon? In the Mishkan. So I say, like we say in the, in, in, the, in the raffles, it's a fix. It's a fix. You're putting Moshe, you're putting Aaron in the right spot where the Kedoret is supposed to be brought and then you tell the other 250, well, there's no room for you. Sorry, we, we can't have you in here. So you're going to go outside off location and the good luck. And if I was the 250, I'd say, hold it. This is, this is not fair. This is rigged. Like, like, like some say the elections were rigged. But they're saying over here, I have no opinion on that. But they're saying that this, this contest is rigged because you're telling us we have to be outside. Of course it's not going to be accepted. You put us in the wrong spot. Now, you have a problem that we all can't fit into the Mishkat? So give us a different contest then. But it's not fair. Now, by the way, and you see the results. What ended up happening? Aharon's ketoret was accepted and theirs wasn't. Actually, the fire came down and burnt them all. They became the ketoret. The human ketoret. They were, they were the 12 spies. And I if, I, if I was a lawyer, I would bring a class action against Moshe Rabbeinu. I would say, this is not right. You, 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 you killed all these people over here, but they didn't stand a chance. Which means this experiment was doomed to fail from the get-go. You tell them to stand outside and bring a ketone. It doesn't work that way, Moshe. And you put Aaron in the, in, in the right spot. This is a very strong question. Ladies, did I lose your attention yet? You had enough? Yes, you had enough? Oh, no. Okay. So say no. All right. Well, now I'm getting thirsty from all these questions. I'm going to make a berakha. I hope you'll all answer Amen. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Shekolem Baruch. Alright, we all agree on that. Now I discuss the theory. It's an unbelievable theory. It's brought down in the, in the, in the books. Nothing that I'm saying is my own. It's all brought down in the books. The way I'm saying it is my own. But the books give the the concepts. There was a major sin that took place in the Jewish people and that's the sin of the golden calf. Now the sin of the golden calf, it's like an event that's, it's life changing. It's world changing. It's like they said, there's the world before 9-11 and then the world after 9-11. Labdil, there's the world before Heta Egel, and then there was cosmic changes after the sin of the golden gap, everything would change. And one of the changes that happened after the sin of the golden gap was no longer will the priests come from the people before the sin of the Egel, who was the priest? Who was the Kohanim? The firstborns. Me. I, I could have been a Kohen. I could have been a priest. But because my ancestors worshipped the golden calf, 
I was fired, along with all my other compatriots of the firstborn uh, ilk, and we were replaced. And now the Kohanim, now it's Aharon and his whole family, and, and now we went to that, uh, to that group. Okay, listen, there's going to be consequences. You make a sin, there's going to be consequences. No problem. But Korah was saying, Moshe, the Egel already is behind us. And already the Egel is over. God has forgiven us already for the Egel. And therefore, why are you holding on to the sin? You know why you're holding on to the sin? Because you want your brother to be the Kohen. What do I mean? If God has forgiven us for the sin of the eagle, it should go back to what it was. And what it was, the priest was open to all the families, not only to your family. Now that's a religious argument. So when he went to the 250 rabbis and all his cohorts, he was telling them, listen, we did the eagle, we cannot deny that. But God forgave us for the eagle, he gave us atonement, and therefore, why is Moshe Rabbeinu holding on to it? Why doesn't he let the Egil go? You know why? Because he's a nepotist. Because he wants to give some appointments to his... Uh, but that's not right. What, he doesn't believe in Teshuvah? He doesn't believe in, 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 in Kapara? And if that's the case, he's got to give the Kiddushah back to the people. Ki chol ha'eda kulam kedoshim, he says. The whole people, they're all kadosh now. Uptocham Adonai and Yudke Vadke is amongst all the people. So therefore, why do you exalt yourself over the people to take these things? And if you look at the text, one of the things that Korah tells Moshe, Rav Lachem. Korah tells Moshe, Rav Lachem, which I always understood it to mean, which I think I was correct. Rav Lachem means, Moshe, you have enough. How much power do you want? But according to this interpretation, Rab Lachem, enough, how long are you going to hold on to the sin of the Egel? You're artificially holding on to this sin and you're not letting it go to your benefit. That's not right. Now the question is, how did Korah know that God forgave us for the Egel? How did he know? <laughs> Does anybody know the reason why we bring para Adumah? You don't know, of course you don't know. It's a hawk. But there was a great rabbi called Rabbi Moshe Haddarshan. And you know what Rabbi Moshe Haddarshan said? You know why you bring the red cow? Because the cow is the mother of the calf. Let the mother come and atone for the child. So para aduma is kapara feheta egel. So that's what the Midrash Pili'ah means. When it says, what did Korah see? He saw para aduma. And he said, well, if there's para aduma, that means there's atonement for the golden calf. And if there's atonement for the golden calf, give it back to the people. Why are you holding on to it? His proof that there was kapara was from the mother cow. Let the mother clean up the mess of the child, the Midrash says. So if there's a para aduma, that means there's no more egel. But Moshe Rabbeinu is holding on to the sin. Every speech, oh, the Egel, the Egel, the Egel. Of course. Because as long as there's Egel, he gets to keep the uh, Kehunah in his own family. That's what Korah was saying. And he says, that's not right. 
we should go back to life pre-Egil, where every family had firstborns, and therefore every family was able to have priests. Now that's a strong claim. That's a good claim. Now, now it's not child's play anymore. Now you're dealing with a pikeya, someone that has a, has a brain. <laughs> but there was a great rabbi called Rabbi Yonatan and he says, wait. That's the beginning of Korah's argument. But then he takes it a step further. And he comes along and he says, it's true I told you that after the sin of the Egel there was a change in the ministers who's going to become the Kwanim, and I'm claiming it should change back. But then he says, you know what my real claim is? It shouldn't have changed in the first place. Even though we did the sin of the Egel, it shouldn't have changed, and you did that on your own. Let me explain. Listen to a story. It's like you're in a courtroom over here hearing from a good lawyer. So Moshe Rabbeinu comes down from the mountain with the tablets. Don't you remember the story? The Luchot. And he sees the people doing the Egel. What does he do? He takes the tablets. He threw them. He threw them down. Somebody was once in, in Magad Day with an eighth grade. We were with Hakam Baruch Alaba Shalom. So somebody, when the rabbi was telling one of these stories, so one of my friends, the kid at the time, he said, but that's not, a, that's not the way it was in the movie, he says to the rabbi. I, I cannot tell you what the rabbi did to him. His, his, his neck is still hurting from what Hakam Baruch did to him in 1981. He's in the movie, Rasha, boom, the movie, beat him up. What are you watching the movies over here? The movie, it's inaccurate. They don't follow the Hazal. <laughs> he learned his lesson. I don't think this guy ever watched a movie after that. Not to take a mammoth, not anything. He was, he was recovered. Anyway, the question over here is, so Moshe Rabbeinu breaks the tablets. Can I ask you a simple question? What was his intention by breaking the tablets? Oh, it's a good question. What was he trying to accomplish? I mean, if it was me, I'm just giving an example. I would have said, listen, there's no way we can give these tablets under this circumstance. That's for sure not. We're not giving the Torah today. I would have taken the tablets, given them back to God, returned to sender, and, uh, you know, uh, rain date, you know, wedding postponed. Uh, postponement of the wedding, and we got to figure out what we're going to do over here. But Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't do that. He breaks them. I want to give you an approach that the Midrash says. Midrash says, huh. Because you know what was going on over here? This was the wedding day. And there was a marriage going to take place over here. There was an engagement already that took place before Matan Torah, and now we're going to consummate the marriage with the Luchot. We were the bride, God was the groom, as says. And on the day of the wedding, the bride committed adultery. We went and worshipped the golden calf. That's adultery. So Moshe Rabbeinu said, if they're going to remain married to God, then this sin is being committed in an adulterous fashion. So by breaking the Luchot, we're still single. It's less of a sin. It doesn't make us righteous, that's for sure not. But it's less of a sin. 
We're not married. The breaking of the Luchot keeps our status as... We're not married yet. So therefore, it's not as big of a crime. That was Moshe Rabbeinu's idea. Good? It's our benefit. If we marry, then we commit this sin. That's adultery of a married to God. And you commit, we never recover. So Moshe Rabbeinu says, let me break them. Now by breaking them, that sets a lot of things in motion. Now, uh, God is angry, uh, and we have, we have to pray, and everything changes. You know what Korah was saying? Moshe, who told you to break the Lord? God didn't tell him to break the tablets. He did it on his own. Now God might have agreed with him, because God said, okay, if Moshe did it, no problem. But God never told him to do it. And what God, what Korah's claim was, you broke the marriage up. God loves us. God knows we're humans. God knows we can make mistakes. And therefore, you came along and you broke the marriage up between us and God. And therefore, you caused all the consequences to come. If you would have just kept the Luchot and give them back to God, maybe God would have reacted differently. And maybe he wouldn't have been so angry. But you started the process by breaking the Luchot, and therefore you broke up the marriage, and therefore we had to redo it, and therefore it was a new program. Why did you do that? Which is maybe this whole story didn't have to happen from the beginning. Who told you to break the Luchot? You caused all this for us, this trouble about God deciding that the Kohanim should be and not the firstborns. Which means basically, you broke up the marriage. We were married to God. Yeah, there was a little, little, little bumpy road there with the egg. I'm not going to say no. But Shalom Bayit would have handled it. Nothing, nothing that a good Shalom Bayit cannot fix. Bump in the road. What, you have a marriage that doesn't have a bump in the road? A little bump. And that's what the Gemara means, that they suspected Moshe Be'eshet Ish. They were suspecting, why did you break the marriage between us and God? We were married to God. You broke to the Lord. You stay, he, they, they suspected Moshe Eshet Ish of compromising our marriage with God, not his marriage. Ladies, understand what I'm saying? Who's the Eshet Ish here? Us. Us to God. We were perfectly married. Also the Eget. So for that you had to shamble the whole marriage by breaking the Luchot? What you have to break the Luchot for? God would have forgiven us. God would have been okay with it. But you went and you overreacted and you broke it. Nah, as if to say, you're more angry than God. Maybe God's loving. Maybe God's merciful. Maybe God's forgiving. Just because we did such a crime. God knows we're humans. All that gold. So you broke up the marriage. That hashaduhu be'eshet ish. They suspected him for influencing the marital status of B'nai Yisrael to God. You understand how we're learning? This is how you learn deep. Not on superficial level. There's another reason why he broke the tablets. Listen to unbelievable what the Gemara says. Moshe Rabbeinu came down and saw the people doing the golden calf. He made what's called a kalvahomer. You know what a Kavahomer is? Kavahomer is a rational argument. He made the following argument. He said, wait. There's a law in the Torah that says that 
somebody that doesn't believe in God cannot bring Korban Pesach. Jewish person. Mother's Jewish, father's Jewish, but he becomes an apostate. He becomes a heretic. There's people like that. They're Jewish, but they don't believe. The Torah says, a heretic and an apostate cannot bring Korban Pesach. So Moshe Rabbeinu made a kavahomen and he said, if Korban Pesach, which was only one mitzvah, and a heretic cannot bring it, here I'm holding the whole Torah. All the more so I cannot give it to heretics. Therefore he broke it. If one law cannot tolerate a heretic, all the laws that I'm holding, I'm holding 613. If one of the 613 cannot tolerate a heretic, you think all the 613 can and they're worshiping Abu Dazarah, these are heretics. So he broke them. He made a kavahomet. Does it make sense to kavahomet? Yes, it does. So what was the motivation to break the, the luchot? A kavahomet. A kavahomet that made a lot of sense. <laughs> Until Korah came. Now we understand. You know what Korah came along and said? Moshe, I want to ask you a question. You think that every time there's a sensible kavahomer, we follow the conclusion? Not always do we follow the logic of kavahomer. And I'll prove it to you. If the whole talit is blue, does it need a blue string? And Moshe Rabbeinu said, yes. And what was Korah saying? So you see, you don't always make kavahomers. He wasn't questioning the law. He was questioning Moshe's rule to say, I made a kavahomet, that's why I broke the law. Well, if you have a room full of mezuzot, doesn't kavahomet say, certainly it does not need a mezuzah? But you and I know it does need a mezuzah. So you see, you don't make a kavahomet. Even though the kavahomet should make sense. And when the whole person is filled from top to bottom with leprosy, kavahomet should tell us what? You should be tameh. But the law says he's not. And I agree with the law. But you see from these three examples that not every time can you make a kalbahomer, do you? The Torah had three opportunities to make kalbahomer and it didn't. And you made a kalbahomer and you shouldn't have done it also. So he was using the three examples. Do you understand what's going on over here? He was using the three examples to question Moshe Rabbeinu's logic in breaking the Luchot. I make it simple. Moshe Rabbeinu came with the tablets. He said, I have a Kalvahomer. And it was a good Kalvahomer. If an heretic cannot be part of Korban Pesach, Kalvahomer cannot be part of the whole law. He breaks it. So Korah says, sounds like a nice Kalvahomer. But not every time you have a nice Kalvahomer does it bring the result. Because I have three examples of Kalvahomer. Talet, Mizuzah, and Bitsorah. And all three Kalvahomers, although it should bring to the conclusion that you shouldn't need Techelet, and you shouldn't need a Mizuzah, and the Mizuzah should be Tameh, but they're not. And therefore, not every Kalvahomer necessarily is acceptable. And therefore, yours is not acceptable either. Therefore, you caused it. This was a... A self-generated problem that you made. If you wouldn't have broke to Luchot, it would have been a different result. God would have came down, it would have said, isn't God El Rahum Vehanun, Erech Apayim? Isn't God merciful? Isn't God all forgiving? Hanun Amar Isn't God uh, 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 all, 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 all compassion? 
Rahum v'hanun. And Moshe Rabbeinu, you came along and you stirred the pot. You broke the marriage up. Nobody told you to do that. Ishit ish, we had a perfect marriage with God. Yeah, bump. So God would have forgiven us. God, uh, he's capable of forgiving, obviously. And don't tell me you made a cover home. Here's three cover homers. You agree that the results are not going to change because of the cover home. So yours was wrong also. Now, ladies, if you were there and I was there, we probably would have said, you know, that makes sense. You know, before this class, Zach caught out, the guy's a creep. This guy caught out, the wise guy, who does he think he is? Now he is, but he's a smart guy. Listen, if he would be able to convince 250 rabbis of the Sanhedrin, he definitely got us. We would fall like a sinker, finish. And by the way, he's not coming with a t-shirt and, and open-toe sandals. He's coming like a rabbi, like a Rosh Hashiva. He has a beard and a hat, but maybe not a beard because he was a Levi that made him shave his beard. But the point is, he's coming as a religious man. He has religious credentials. This is a man that has Ruach HaKodesh. Nobody in this generation has Ruach HaKodesh. So, again, I know what was driving Korah was a wrong, bad traits. But that's what was in his mind. But what he told the people was this story. That's a good story. Now watch this. Uh, just one more point, and then we'll call it a day. There's a lot to say. Tomorrow morning, if you come to the class, I'll give you the, the part two of it. But, but now that's it. I'm up from early in the morning. I'm getting tired. So the second, the second point I want to tell you is like this. And even if you heard it today, you still have to come tomorrow because you can't repeat it after you hear it once. You need to hear it a few times to let it... I would go to the class of Acham Baruch many times, and when I would hear him say something that I heard, my natural tendency would be is to pay less attention. But as I got older, I said, look at this. I thought I understood it, but I didn't understand it correctly until I heard it the second time, the third time. So, therefore, I don't have a problem of hearing the same song over and over again. When I go to the restaurant, I say, give me the, give me the, give me the usual, give me the regular. I said, I eat the same food over and over again. So I can hear the same dirash over and over again. Oh. Now listen to this. Let's talk about the Mishkan for a minute. When did the Mishkan come into being? When did the structure, where God says, I'm going to have my presence over there, and everybody meets me over there, the tent of meeting. When did, the, when did this Mishkan, uh, when was it conceived? We look at the Bible, Torah says, after the Egil. After the golden calf, now God says, Ah, Mishkan. Now, shall I tell you how I always understood it? Rashi says, The Mishkan was a testimony that God has forgiven us to a certain degree for the golden calf. That's why He's going to rest His presence. That's what's called Mishkan Ha'edut. Edut means testimony. Testimony of what? The Bore Olam has forgiven us, more or less. But there's a great rabbi called Sforno. I have a copy of it. Whoever wants to see it after the class, it's in the end of Mishpatim in Perechaf Pasuk Yitro Perechaf Pasuchaf, 2020. Sforno says, "No, you know why we had a Mishkan? Because of the sin of the Egel." 
Because if the Jewish people didn't do the Egil, you know where the Mishkan would have been? Everywhere. You would have been able to serve God in any location you want. Geographically, God would be in every place. Now that you did the Egil, God says, oh, now I'm capitulating. I'm taking all the Kiddushah that should have been spread throughout the nation, and now I'm bringing it back to the Mishkan, which means the Mishkan is a, it's, 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 it's a consolation. It's not, it's not something that is, it's not first place. It's not optimum. What's optimum? Not to have a Mishkan. Because if you don't have a Mishkan, then where, if you don't have a structure called the Mishkan, then where is the Mishkan? Everywhere. You go to your backyard, you, you serve God. Because everything would have been holy. What caused the holiness to capitulate to a structure called the Mishkan? The Egil. So the Mishkan is a direct result of Heta Egil. Now, life will never be the same anymore. Instead of meeting God anywhere at any place, now you got to do it in this box. You understand where we're going with this? What was Korah's claim? Moshe, the Egil was all your fault. You overreacted. You threw the Luchot. You're still holding on to it after God forgave us already. And therefore, had you reacted differently, because you're the leader and God follows the leader, if you would have reacted differently, God would have forgiven us. It would have been all over. And therefore, Korah saying, you could bring the ketoret anywhere. And that's why the 250 men, they said, we don't want to bring it in the Mishkan. We believe you can bring the ketoret even outside. They didn't have any claims why they can't go into the Mishkan. Their claim was, you don't need to go into the Mishkan. Our question was, it's not fair. And the answer is no. That's where they want. That was their argument. So they were, Aaron, you go in the Mishkan because you believe. Uh, you gotta go. We believe that you, nothing changed. Nothing changed. After the anger, life is the same. God forgave us. And you created this whole catastrophe of anger, Moshe. You threw Luhot. You made God angry at us. You, you changed the whole. But it's not so. And the proof of the pudding is you'll see tomorrow morning they'll come with their fiery pants. They'll bring the ketoret outside and they'll be accepted. Now, of course, we know it wasn't because they were wrong. But that was the convincing argument that Moshe Rabbeinu had, Aaron, Korah had to the people. You understand how we answered that question? Their claim was, God is everywhere. Like the song says, Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is everywhere. That's what they believed. And Moshe Rabbeinu says, it's true, but uh, the presence is in the Mishkan, and you can't bring the Ketorah anywhere. I said, of course, because you carried on with this Hegel business, breaking the Luchot, making Kabbalahomers that don't, that don't necessarily work, breaking up the marriage, Eshet Ish. But if you would have played it a little differently, the Shekhinah would have been everywhere, and therefore it could be the Shekhinah is everywhere. And anybody can be a Kohen today, like a firstborn was before, and therefore we're going to show it to you. We'll bring the Ketonim outside by design. They were wrong. 
you see, this is a uh, it's a deep way of learning the story, that's for sure. But this is a proper way of learning the story. It's a deep way, but it's proper. This is the way we're supposed to study it. One more point. Consider this a bonus. I just want to make a point about mahloket, because we have to say something. Listen, you, I know you come to class to learn the story. Then you also come to class to learn something practical. Although I believe it's practical enough to learn the story. That's practical to me. We're learning homage properly. But some people say, but I want to take something with me in my pocket, Musar, and I want to be a better person. You're a better person because you learned the story. You are, but you're already a better person. We're not having to tell you the moral of the story. It's not fairy tale books we're reading. But some people say, nonetheless, when somebody says, well, what was the lesson the rabbi taught you? What's the takeaway message? So therefore, for those people that come for that, I'll give you something you can take away. Although I don't believe you need it. The takeaway is you learned Hamash properly. But here's the takeaway for those that want. There was a, it's a mahlokit that's taking place. This is a dispute. It's Moshe and Korah, and there's a dispute here. You cannot deny that. I want to show you there's a big difference in the way Moshe approaches the dispute and the way Korah approaches the dispute. And this is a lesson for us because from time to time we get embroiled. From time to time we get embroiled and stuff. And therefore we have to know that our reaction should be like Moshe and not Korah. And explain. Oh, that's only water. Look at these, we have beautiful Nuhumashim now in the shul. So over here it says, Moshe Rabbeinu tells the people, Moshe Rabbeinu tells the people, tomorrow morning, we'll make an experiment. And what's the experiment? You'll bring the, uh, the pans. Here it is. Zot Asur. Kihudachim Mahtot. Take for yourself fire pans. Put fire in it. And put the ketoret on it. And then we'll see who, who's, who's ketoret gets accepted, who's not. So again, what are these pans called? Fiery pans. Pans with a fire and ketoret. So far so good? Beautiful. Let's go a little further. Now we get to the actual uh, real time. Tells them, prepare for the experiment. Everybody take their shovel and put ketoret on it. Where's the fire? <laughs> when they get to the actual moment, the Torah does not mention anything about the fire. So what does the Pasuk say? They take the pans. <laughs> What's going on over here? And they put the fire. 
Rabotai, what is going on over here? When Moshe Nebiru gives them the program, he says, fire. And then he tells them, Ketoret, without fire. Then when they take it, put fire. No, it was an explanation. It's all in the text, you have to say something. But I'm telling you now, it comes from a great rabbi called Maharil Diskin. Maharil Diskin says like this. I know you don't play Russian roulette. It's a dangerous game. It's a risky game. I'm not going to tell you how to play. It's a risky game. This is worse than Russian roulette. What Moshe Rabbeinu was telling them to do. Because here, it's not there's a winner and a loser. The one who loses this contest dies. We, we know if you make a mistake with the Ketoret, I mean, look what happened to Nadav Abiyu. I mean, this is dangerous stuff. I mean, the fire is going to consume them. Now, why would Moshe Rabbeinu make the stakes so high? He could just tell them, listen, here's a contest. If you're right, this will happen. If we're right, this will happen. And then you'll know who's right. And then you go home and uh, have dinner. No, Moshe Rabbeinu, no, we're going to make it more exciting. We're going to play Russian roulette over here. If I'm right, very good. And if you're wrong, you die. Wow. Why does he have to make the stake so high? It's a good question, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a heavy game. You have a contest. You come in first, you come in second. You come in contact. You do, you, live or die? It's a, it's a heavy, uh, heavy consequence. You know what Mara Diskin says? So beautiful. Moshe Rabbeinu was trying to dispel the mahloket. He don't want this mahloket. He don't want them to come and challenge. He wants to just get... So you know what he tells them? When he tells it to them, he says, we're going to have a contest with a pan with fire. Expecting them to get so scared because they know what's going to happen with the fire if they're guilty. They'll say, you know what? Uh, pass. That's good. But you know what happened? The next day they showed up. Now when they showed up, Moshe Rabbeinu says, okay, now, I, I thought they're not going to show up. But now that they showed up, I'm changing the rules. I don't want anybody to die over here. Take a pan with ketoret, he doesn't mention fire. Because at the end, when they did show up, he wasn't looking to kill them. So you see Moshe's trait is what? He's trying to defuse the mahlok and he's not trying to hold on to the dispute. But what happened? They were so committed and entrenched in the mahlok already, they said, we'll bring the fire. Because when you get into a mahlok, you start to act irrationally. You don't even start thinking correctly. They took the fire on their own. Even Moshe Rabbeinu said, you don't have to take the fire. They said, no, why are we think we're babies? We're going to show you with the fire. And they started to talk like big shots, but that's because the mahluk had got into their head. And that's what happens. So you see two approaches. Moshe's approaches, the fuse, the fuse, the fuse. He didn't take it personally. He's trying to make it less. And what are the people?
One more example of these two approaches, which is very important. You remember that when the ground opened up, it says the children of Korah did not die. And it says they made Teshuvah. Now I'm assuming that when they fell in, they, they, they took the Mahzor of Yom Kippur with them. And as they were falling in, they had to quickly open up to the Vidui of the Sim Gaon. And they made a Vidui, Adadi, Vidui Gadol, Adadi, Amiti, Bajadi, Lota, Aseh, They must have done Vidui, correct? Of course not. They didn't carry the Mahzor with them. As a matter of fact, the Midrash and Tehilim says they couldn't even talk, they couldn't even open their mouth. You, you know what type of fear that was? The ground is cracking open louder than any thunder you ever heard in your life. The fire of all the 250 is around them. The Gehinam is beneath them. You think they have the ability even to open their mouth? So what, what did they do? Tehilim. Rahash libi davar tov. They had intentions in their minds. They couldn't verbalize. They couldn't open their mouths. They couldn't say anything. They were so in, in shock. They were so uh, 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 amazed from what was going on. So therefore, what did he do? In their brain, in their brain, they just said, we made a mistake. Now, what does God do? Now, God knows what they're thinking. He makes a ledge. The ledge comes out, jump on the ledge, and they get saved. But you know what this tells me? I mean, when you see you're falling into Gehinam, it's very logical that the thing that enters your brain is, what did I do? And that's all God wants. Even if you think in your brain, what did I do? That's enough teshuvah to save you. Even if you didn't bang, even if you didn't have to, to be doing, even if you just have a thought, what did I do? And you didn't even verbalize it. God saved it. And you know what that tells me? Korah didn't even have that. From what B'nai Korah had, that tells me how bad Korah was. That even when he was falling into the Gehinam, when he saw what's happening to him, a thought even didn't enter his brain. Because if the same thought that entered B'nai Korah would have entered Korah's brain, he would have been saved also. That means he didn't even have that. That's a very important point. That means B'nai Korah is a window into how bad Korah was. He didn't even have thoughts of repentance. So Korah is so entrenched in the Mahloket, he can't even admit that he was wrong. That's what happens. You get so dizzy from the Mahloket, so drunk from the Mahloket. Okay, but Korah, you're losing now. You're falling into Gainam. Admit, I will not admit. As he's going down, I'm right. I told you I'm right. What do you mean you're right? What, 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 Gainam, you're right? How can you still be right, Korah? And you do a cat skin on his brain. And what does it say in his brain? I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. That one, that one repentance. But says the great Sadiqim, the Belzer Rebbe said this, and I'm done. That Moshe Rabbeinu says, they should be swallowed in the ground alive. 
Now, what does Moshe Rabbeinu care if they were alive when they got swallowed or they should die? What, when they went into the ground, they, they got swallowed alive. I would have said, let them have a heart attack. Let them die in the spot. What they, let them go into the ground alive. Because Moshe Rabbeinu says, as long as they're alive, they can repent. As long as they're alive, they can have a thought. Moshe Rabbeinu, I don't want to kill Korah. I want Korah to make the Shuvah. I don't want to have a fight with anybody. Let him go in alive, because every second he's alive, he might have an idea in his brain. And he might make repent, like, like the children of Korah did. So again, you see, look at the two approaches. Korah is taking the Ma'loka to the grave. And the people, even though Moshe Rabbeinu said, you don't need fire. They said, oh, we'll bring the fire anyway. We don't care. It's irrational. And Moshe Rabbeinu is the opposite. Even though they're challenging and even though they're making trouble, Moshe Rabbeinu says, you don't need to bring the fire. I don't want to hurt anybody. Now. The contest changed. The rules changed. And regarding the swallowing in the ground, dear God Almighty, let them go down alive. Because maybe Korah for a minute, not even a minute, for a split second, will have some thoughts of Teshuvah, and then he'll be able to get saved. But unfortunately, he wasn't. And this is a, a great, great Musar, that God forbid if we find ourselves in a mahluk or a dispute, we have to be from the sides of Moshe Rabbeinu, just to push it away. We don't want to hold on to mahluk is, 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 is dangerous, for all sides, even the side that's right. You have, to, you have to try to diffuse it, try to, try to get rid of it, not to, to harp on it. it. It only brings damage to all sides included. In the case of Korah, they held on to it, and look where, look where they ended. And that's a, that's a good moral of the story. Okay, we'll stop over here. Baruch Amen. Amen.